Chapter 96 A cover is always necessary. In concealment lies a great part of our strength. Hence we must always hide ourselves under the name of another society. Die neuesten Arbeiten des Spartacus und Philo in dem Illuminaten Orden. 1794, page 165. At that same time, reading some pages of our diabolicals, we found that the Comte de Saint-Germain, among his numerous disguises, had assumed the identity Rutzkoshi, at least according to the ambassador of Frederick II in Dresden. And the landgrave of Hesse, at whose residence Saint-Germain was supposed to have died, said that he was of Transylvanian origin, and his name was Rogotsky. We had also to consider that Comenius dedicated his Pansophiae, a work surely born in the odor of Rosicrucianism, to a landgrave, another landgrave, named Rogovsky. A final touch to the mosaic, browsing at a bookstall in Piazza Castello, I found a German work on masonry, anonymous, in which an unknown hand had added, on the fly-leaf, a note to the effect that the text was the work of one Karl August Rogotki. Bearing in mind that Rogotsky was the name of the mysterious individual who had perhaps killed Colonel Ardenti, we now could include in the plan our Comte de Saint-Germain. "'Aren't we giving that scoundrel too much power?' Diotalevi asked, concerned. "'No, no,' Belbo replied. "'We need him, like soy sauce in Chinese dishes. If it's not there, it's not Chinese. Look at Allier, who knows a thing or two. Did he take Cagliostro as his model, or Villermoz? No, Saint-Germain is the quintessence of Homo Hermeticus.' Pierre Ivanovich Rakovsky, jovial, sly, feline, intelligent, and astute, a counterfeiter of genius, first a petty bureaucrat, later in contact with revolutionary groups. In 1879 he is arrested by the secret police and charged with having given refuge to terrorist companions after their attempted assassination of General Drentel. He becomes a police informer and, here we go, joins the ranks of the Black Hundreds, in 1890 he discovers in Paris an organization that makes bombs for demonstrations in Russia. He arranges the arrest, back home, of seventy-three terrorists. Ten years later it is discovered that the bombs were made by his own men. In 1887 he circulates a letter by a certain Ivanov, a repentant revolutionary, who declares that the majority of the terrorists are Jews. In 1890 a confession par un vieillard ancien révolutionnaire in which the exiled revolutionaries in London are accused of being British agents. And in 1892, a bogus text of Plekhanov, which accuses the leaders of the Narodnaya Volya party of having had that confession published. In 1902 he forms a Franco-Russian anti-Semitic league. To ensure its success he uses a technique similar to that of the Rosicrucians. He declares that the league exists so that people will then create it. But he uses another tactic, too. He cleverly mixes truth with falsehood, the truth apparently damaging to him so that nobody will doubt the falsehood. He circulates in Paris a mysterious appeal to support the Russian Patriotic League, headquarters in Kharkov. In the appeal he attacks himself as the man who wants to make the League fail, and he expresses the hope that he, Rakovsky, will change his mind. He accuses himself of relying on discredited characters like Nihilus, and this is true. Why can the protocols be attributed to Rakovsky? Rakovsky's sponsor is Count Sergei Vita, a minister who desires to turn Russia into a modern country. 
Why the progressive Vita makes use of the reactionary Rakovsky, God only knows. But at this point, the three of us would have been surprised by nothing. Vita has a political opponent, Elie de Sion, who has already attacked him publicly, making assertions that recall certain passages in the Protocols, except that in Sion's writings there are no references to the Jews, since he is of Jewish origin himself. In 1897, at Vita's orders, Rakovsky has Sion's villa at Terrata searched, and he finds a pamphlet by Sion drawn from Jolie's book, or Suze, in which the ideas of Machiavelli Napoleon III are attributed to Vita. With his genius for falsification, Rakovsky substitutes the Jews for Vita and has the text circulated. The name Sion is perfect, suggesting Zion, and now everybody sees that an eminent Jewish figure is denouncing a Jewish plot. This is how the protocols are born. The text falls into the hands of Juliana or Justine Glinka, who in Paris frequents Madame Blavatsky's Parisian circle, and in her free time she spies on and denounces Russian revolutionaries in exile. This Glinka woman is undoubtedly an agent of the Paulicians, who are allied to the agrarians and therefore want to convince the Tsar that Vita's programs are part of the international Jewish plot. Glinka sends the document to General Orgyavsky, and he, through the commander of the Imperial Guard, sees that it reaches the Tsar. Vita is in trouble. So Rakovsky, driven by his anti-Semitism, contributes to the downfall of his sponsor, and probably to his own. Because from that moment on we lose all trace of him. But Saint-Germain, perhaps donned new disguises, moved on to new reincarnations. Nevertheless, our story was plausible, rational, because it was backed by facts. It was true. As Belbo said, true is the Bible. Which reminded me of what De Angelis had told me about the synarchy. The fine thing about the whole story, our story, and perhaps also history itself, as Belbo hinted with feverish eyes as he handed me his file cards, was that groups locked in mortal combat were slaughtering one another, each in turn using the other's weapons. The first duty of a good spy, I remarked, is to denounce as spies those whom he has infiltrated. Belbo said, I remember an incident in... name omitted. At sunset, along a shady avenue, I always ran into this guy named Ramo, or something like that, in the little black balila. Black mustache, curly black hair, black shirt, and black teeth, horribly rotten. And he would be kissing a girl. I was revolted by those black teeth kissing that beautiful blonde. I don't even remember what her face was like, but for me she was virgin and prostitute, the eternal feminine, and great was my revulsion. Instinctively he adopted a lofty tone to show irony, aware that he had allowed himself to be carried away by the innocent tenderness of the memory. I asked myself why this Ramo, who belonged to the Black Brigades, dared allow himself to be seen around like that, even in the periods when, name omitted, was not occupied by the fascists. Someone whispered to me that he was a fascist spy. However it was, one evening I saw him in the same black balila, with the same black teeth, kissing the same blonde, but now with a red kerchief around his neck and a khaki shirt. He had shifted to the Garibaldi brigades. Everybody made a fuss over him, and he actually gave himself a nom de guerre, X-9, like the Alex Raymond character whom I had read about in the Aventuroso comics. Bravo, X-9, they said to him and I hated him more than ever because he possessed the girl by popular consent. Those who said he was a fascist spy among the partisans were probably men who wanted the girl themselves, so they cast suspicion on X-9. And then what happened? See here, Kasabin, why are you so interested in my life? 
because you make it sound like a folktale, and folktales are part of the collective imagination. Hmm, good point. One morning, X-9 was driving along, out of his territory. Maybe he had a date to meet the girl in the fields, to go beyond their kissing and pawing and show her that his prick was not as rotten as his teeth. I'm sorry, I still can't make myself love him. Anyway, the fascists set a trap for him, captured him, took him into town, and at five o'clock the next morning they shot him. A pause. Belbo looked at his hands, which he had clasped, as if in prayer. Then he held them apart and said, That was the proof that he wasn't a spy. The moral of the story? Who said stories have to have a moral? But now that I think about it, maybe the moral is that sometimes, to prove something, you have to die. <laughs>